0: You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co host Jen Wilkin and JT English. On today's episode, we are talking through listener submitted questions. Uh, listeners of the Knowing Faith Podcast submitted questions using the hashtag Knowing Faith Podcast. We've loved jumping into the discussion around that hashtag, answering questions, sending out resources, filling in blanks that were left in the episode. And so, if you want to jump on to that hashtag Knowing Faith we would love to jump into the discussion with you. We cover a lot of different topics. We weren't able to answer all Of the questions, but we hope that you will really enjoy our attempt to answer some of the questions in the only way we knew how. Um, We're taking a break in July and August where we will be off. So there will be no releases of Knowing Faith in July and August. And we know we're kind of bummed about it because it means we don't get a chance to hang out and talk through these things together. But we will come back in September with weekly episodes covering the book of Acts and the Apostles' Creed in the fall. And so we're really excited about that. We hope you enjoy this QA discussion. uh, Maybe we'll answer your questions, but probably not. Enjoy it. Well, uh, this is the Q&A episode. We've titled it, I think, accurately this time, uh, which is that uh, you ask, we answer, maybe, kinda, not really, probably not. <laughs> that's kind of the, that's the parentheses, because people will always be like, well, hey, thanks for the Q&A episode, but you didn't really answer my question. A lot of you guys submitted questions through the hashtag Knowing Faith Podcast. It's been really fun to engage listeners through that hashtag and just to follow along with the questions you have. And a lot of you submitted questions, way more questions than we could get to. And I'm not going to do any of the banter, which I know Jen will be grateful for. <laughs> we're going to jump right into the questions because there's a lot of them, and we we we're not even going to get to what we have. But here we go. First one: eternal subordination of the Son and complementarian theology. Let's talk about it. So this, this we got a ton of these. Oh yeah, yeah. Like because people are curious about and that and we've we've dropped. We probably have not spoken as. I I would say this and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong I feel like we probably feel more force behind this than we've let on and I think the listeners have caught on because we've dropped stuff in and we've been like "Yeah, yeah 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 but also this be careful of this be careful of this And we, we, maybe that's what they're picking up on is that we've kind of sprinkled in a couple of times. Hey, there's some real problems. If you tie Trinitarian theology to complementarianism, Hey, there's some real problems if you do this, but we haven't actually maybe said, yeah, there are some real problems. You should actively avoid it. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts table?
1: We've got a lot. Um, so maybe we can just define some terms really quickly. So first the eternal functional subordination of the son has to do with God's relations in himself how the Father, Son, and Spirit relate to each other. So the first category is the category of Trinitarianism or just the doctrine of God. The second category, complementarian theology, is, is more of an anthropological category or how humans relate to each other, specifically men and women. So we're talking about the relationship between two doctrines and how one doctrine does or at all affects the other. Yes. Okay? So if, if you are not familiar with what we're talking about, that's what we're trying to do. Historically, the church has said that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit share equally and perfectly in one divine essence. And the only thing that distinguishes them is their person. The Father is the Father and not the Son and the Spirit. The Son is the Son, not the Father and not the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit, not the Father or the Son. And the thing that distinguishes them specifically is their personhood, okay? And we can come back to that because I'm sure there's some questions about that. Uh, for virtually 2,000 years, the church confessed that there is no subordination within God. Within his relations in himself. Within his relations within himself, that's right. But when the son, somebody might be asking, well, it seems like the, this, that Jesus is regularly talking about submitting to his father's will, and that he is wanting to be obedient to his father. That's true. But when you talk about uh, Jesus Christ, you're talking about now christology the, the the one person who has two natures a human nature and a divine nature what the bible is not saying is that somehow his divine nature is being obedient to his divine nature mm-hmm. right because that can't happen the one will can't be obedient to the one will right what it is talking about is a human a human nature being obedient the divine nature in submitting in submitting absolutely submitting but what the eternal functional subordination position has done is it has subordinated the son's divine will to the father's divine will in a way that really does it wreaks havoc in my opinion just candidly on the doctrine of God it creates at least two if not three wills within the Godhead and it creates a distinction between the persons that is entirely unhelpful
0: right so Eternal functional subordinationism is the view that that in the Son's divine nature, forever past and forever future, the Son is uh, the Son's will is submissive to the Father's will. That's right. And the
1: re- one of the, one of the primary reasons that, that it's problematic is that willingness has always been located within the essence of God, or the better to say, the unity of God.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes.
1: So God only Sometimes has
0: what we call the the. the uh, ontological yeah. yeah that's right so
1: God has one will that is shared by the Father the Son and by the Holy Spirit to say that the Son is submissive to the Father's will creates two wills mm-hmm. and so where eternal functional subordinationism could lead is tritheism
0: Three different persons with three or sorry, three, three different, different gods with yep. three different wills. So that's right.
2: Now explain how that discussion has impacted discussions around roles within complementarianism. Yeah, so, well it, it
1: didn't until recently. It didn't until recently. That's right. And so this is a, a perfect example of the tail wagging the dog, yeah. right, where you're, you're working from a secondary theological issue like complementarianism and importing things that you need from it back into a primary theological issue like the doctrine of God. So with complementarianism, we're confessing that all humans, both male and female, have been created in God's image, that we, since we are all created in God's image, share in dignity, in power, authority, in the mission of God, that we are all image bearers, but that men and women are not interchangeable. They are distinct. And some uh, forms of complementarianism root this distinction in uh, male headship and female submission. So they're trying to say that there is ontological equality but relational distinction. And that relational distinction is primarily one of authority for men and one of submission for women.
0: And then they, they rewind that... Back into the relationship and say, so see, and the Son. see,
1: we have equality and distinction of
0: authority and submission, not only in humans but in God Himself. And the argument will go something like, "Well, God created us in His image. Yep. Mm-hmm. If God is this way, then humanity, male and female, are this way." And mm-hmm. then they'll like, like jump like a huge hurdle over to Ephesians or Corinthians and be like, "Here you go. Mm-hmm. That's that's the move." So you go. They're uh, they, uh, humanity is created in the image of God, male and female. Uh, if they're created in the image of God, that is uh, where the son is submissive to the father mm-hmm. uh, eternally, um, submissive to the father. Then, in his divine nature, then like that's just part of it. It's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. The son and the father are still equal. Male and female are still equal, but there is a uh, there is a, an authority power dynamic that is different. And the relations.
2: So then how would you shift that to what you believe is a clearer understanding of male female relationships that does not rely on a flawed view of the Trinity? Well the, the the short of it is, like I'll often say that like this doing this move, making this move, mm-hmm.
0: taking this what is I what we agree is a faulty way of thinking about the relationship between the father and the son taking this and then using it for complementarianism is one it's unnecessary and two it's unhelpful Mm -hmm. it's like putting a vet engine in a golf cart that's what i've said before (laughs) it's like yeah you probably could run the golf cart with the vet engine but you don't need it it's not like what the golf cart's built for trinitarian theology is the corvette and complementarianism is the golf cart Mm -hmm. okay and i'm not saying that uh, I'm not saying that uh, we're not complementarians. We are all at this table complementarians. What we're saying is that two things. We're complementarians and you don't need this. Mm-hmm. So eat, like, like, I just think that the cost here and the risk far outweighs the benefit. Because you can just clearly look at Genesis 1 and 2 and go, oh, complementarianism.
2: Mm.
0: Like you don't need anything more than
2: that. And it's not just complement. You can look at it and go, and it's good. I'm thinking about Genesis 1 and 2 now.
1: You should be, because that's <laughs> where we largely draw complementarian <laughs> right. theology from. But,
2: but when you when you base it on Genesis 1 and 2 without this framework, I think you, I would say that you begin to um, speak less dogmatically about certain aspects of complementarianism than have been historically
0: spoken of. For sure. Yeah. And that, like that's for good.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you began to begin and this is actually kind of the process that we ended up with at the villages once we once we kind of stepped back out of I think what we would say is an echo chamber. Yeah. We began looking at Genesis 1 and 2 as an articulation of a vision for the family of God. Right. And and that meant that when we talked about distinctions, we talked about them um, in more uh, expansive language than headship submission that we, we 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 read headship and submission we're like okay we can see where there are aspects of that in the text but that um that card may have been overplayed a little bit in the at least in the it, with with the emphasis that we've placed on it oh, definitely. Um, and that and that we would we would see some other tones here that need to be sounded that have been missing from the dialogue
0: for sure. I mean, we moved... And we've talked about this on the show before. I've talked about it personally as moving from the emphasis in Genesis 1 and 2 being distinction to being...
2: Starting with sameness. Starting and with sameness. And then understanding distinction in light of sameness and, and going from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then
0: the other, the flip side to all of this is that you don't need, you don't need complementarianism. I'm sorry. You don't need trini- uh, the, the, this, this approach, eternal functional subordination of the sun. You don't need it to get complementarianism. You can get it right from Genesis 1 and 2. And you also don't need it to justify your ecclesiological positions on like elders mm-hmm. because scripture's like, it's, it's clear about that as well. So they just like, I don't, I, as somebody who actually held this position, like this position that we're talking about now as not a viable option mm-hmm. who held this for years, I would say that once, like I lost nothing. By going, oh, yeah, that's actually not really helpful and may compromise some, like, theology proper stuff, doctrine of God stuff that I don't want to compromise. You know what? Like, I'm no less a Mm complementarian than I was at that point. Um, And uh, my, my views on church governance and leadership, the role of elders and who can serve hasn't changed.
2: And so one of the reasons that this was a question that came up multiple times is because when you guys have mentioned it before, you've associated it with some fairly recognizable names. And I don't think we need to reiterate those right now, but what is the intellectual exercise that's being asked of us when we go, oh, I actually love a ton of things that this person has taught. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like what is, describe for me, you know, how do do we feel safe in that?
1: I think the first thing is theological charity. Uh Just a recognition that none of us come close to getting all of this right. Right. And regardless of how right you are about one topic does not guarantee that you're going to be right about the next Mm -hmm. topic that Mm -hmm. you talk about, Mm -hmm. but all of us have shortcomings and blind spots and our need of others to speak into our lives that we can then be taught and we can learn from other people and we can go and revisit the scriptures and say, is this what God has said to us in his word? And that just shows that there is no human canon, right? There is not one person that we get to look to and say what they say. I get to receive all of it. Only the Bible has that place in our lives. And so we're always taking what men say and treating it according to and treating it uh, or filtering it through what God has said. And so, regardless of how much you've been helped by somebody who perhaps confesses it, eternal mm-hmm. functional subordination, you don't have to deny the other things that have helped you, yeah, right? Sure. Like, they, they might be you might you, and th- this is actually something we walk through a bit in the training program with people is I'm not asking you to deny the other mm-hmm. things that they've said that are mm-hmm. right. I'm simply saying you should treat that person as a fallible person, not as the infallible word of God.
2: Yeah, and yeah. that can be a real stretch for us. This oh, is, yeah. we've talked a lot about the expert amateur divide that can exist between those who are on a platform and those who are in the pews and how we, we want to diminish the expert amateur divide to the extent that it's appropriate to do so. And that meaning that we want those sitting in the pews to be thinking critically about what they're hearing. And I know that as we walked through the process of refining our thinking around this issue in particular, to be able to sit in a room and ask questions and have dialogue around this with people that I trusted, who I knew would challenge me, who wouldn't let me go down a slippery slope, but who would let me pursue a thought to its logical conclusion, perhaps clumsily so until we could get there, was just invaluable. It was probably um, the best example of doing theology in community Mm -hmm. that I've ever been a part of because it was a topic I was terrified to look at and didn't even want to look at. Mm -hmm. And like, you guys dragged me kicking and screaming. along some days and I
1: think it was the opposite some other days. i mean it was
2: it was one it was it was really really hard, and i yep. think we would we would also admit that we don't feel like we we have everything figured no out way. On this, um, but I will say that a view that I held at second or third degree, you know, distance from now, I can say I can own my position on yeah. this in a way that I couldn't before. But I also feel more charitable to those who mm-hmm. yeah. who who have landed differently. And there will be
0: some who tell you that the divisions on the on a topic like this and other topics like this mm-hmm. that are kind of intramural conversations mm-hmm. are divisions between conservative and liberal, right. or orthodox and heterodox, right. And, and, and just, not. no, they're not. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to, like, if you want to like, believe, like, if you want to live in that space where your whole world is prone to extremities like that, <laughs> and it seems like there's a lot that do, you can do that. It's a miserable <laughs> place to live. It's called Twitter. Yeah, it, no, that, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about, is that there are people who would say that what we have just said is not faithful, mm-hmm. it is not complementarian, and it's not orthodox. And that's fine, um, but they're wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and uh,
1: I hope I don't jump into the that same pool here, but if, the, if they're basing that based upon their doctrine of God, they're the ones who are actually denying <laughs> a Nicene or the, the, the Council of Nicene uh, view of yeah. who God is. Right. You're, you're doing some massive gymnastics on what the church has put together uh, for, sen- like you are denying what Christians have said for centuries about the doctrine of
0: God in order to accept
1: what evangelicals started saying in the 1970s about people.
0: Yeah, for sure. And if, and if you're willing to make the exchange of the creeds for an engine that complementarianism doesn't need, that's an exchange you can make, but I'm not going down the path with you. Yep. So,
2: all right. Next. Next. We're going to keep going. How, um, how
0: do we defend the closed nature of the canon? This is probably in reference to stuff that we talked about with uh, Kruger. I was going to
2: say, we don't. We just ask Mike Kruger to Yeah. We're just like, question. hey, yo,
0: Dr. Kruger, tell us about the canon. <laughs> uh, that, honestly, if you did not listen to that episode, it's a fantastic episode. His book, Canon Revisited, is phenomenal. He does. Actually, we asked him this question in that podcast. We talked about like, hey, because I always love the question, like, hey, if you found the other letters to Corinth, mm-hmm. would you would you mm-hmm. include them as canonical? Why or why not?
2: Okay, explain closed nature of
0: the canon. The clo- what are we saying? We're saying that the books that we have that compromise, this person's probably asking that the comprise. question. That comprise. Thank you. <laughs> that comprise. That comprise <laughs> yeah. those, books that compromise <laughs> those books that comprise this Bible. Those books that comprise. Words matter. Um, mm-hmm. Comprise uh, the Bible. The, uh, the books that comprise the Bible. And this person, I would have imagine. Imagine asking from the vantage point of the Bibles that most Protestants are using, Mm -hmm. um, which would exclude books that our Catholic brothers and sisters might be using uh, or or do have in their Bibles that we consider apocryphal, um, that these books are the only books that should be included as canonical Mm -hmm. and that there's no new revelation um, uh, because –
2: So they're the right books? They're the right books. And they're the sum total of the books. And we don't need any more. We have, we have all that the church needs for faith and practice. So how do you defend that? Kruger's not here to save your bacon.
0: Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't defend uh, – I, I am sympathetic to one side and I'm close off to another. If the question is asked from the vantage point of uh, is there ongoing revelation to people or peoples um, that are non-apostolic in nature, meaning they're not apostles – or they're not people who were contemporaries or walked with contemporaries of Jesus Christ, which that was mm-hmm. one of the, that's a canonical rule, so to mm-hmm. speak. Then uh, if the question is asked for more of a, uh, maybe a charismatic framework, um, that's like, well, why not include new revelation from God to people mm-hmm. in what we considered the sum total of God's revelation? Uh, then I would say, well, I have some issues with that because mm-hmm. I don't believe that God is still re- revealing inspired, inerrant, uh, Truth to non-apostolic witnesses, mm-hmm. um, so that that has more to do with how I think about the inspiration of Scripture, who was inspired when. So I'm not sympathetic to that. What I am sympathetic to, and what is not a popular opinion, and an opinion I, th- I believe, if I remember correctly, Dr. Kruger did not agree with, um, uh, which is great. He's probably right. Um, <laughs> he's <laughs> but go thought, ahead, Kyle. He's thought way
2: more about. <laughs> go ahead, blow us <laughs> he's away. Given
0: his life to thinking about it, so I bet he. You should listen to him. I am more sympathetic to where if we unearthed. The letter to Corinth, and we could validate its apostolic and its timeliness. If we could, if we could validate its authenticity, if we discovered a manuscript, because that's what the Bible is comprised of. The New Testament is comprised of Greek manuscripts that we have varying degrees of collections of um, at various dates. If we found it, I would be, I would be sympathetic to arguments in favor of including it in the canon. That it, is bananas, Kyle. <laughs> why? if it was if, if it was written by the Apostle Paul? If it was written by the Apostle Paul. If it was a copy of it. Well, that's all we have of all the other books.
2: I thought we had multiple copies. If the but Apostle have,
1: Paul wrote down a grocery list, should we put it into the into the canon? If it was, Because, because JT, Kyle, don't trivialize this. Okay, now we're going. Let's
0: go, let's go for it. Is a grocery list different than a letter to a church where he mentions, I wrote you another letter? He tells them. Of course I, it's a different, but you just said if it was written by Paul. That was your argument. No, no, I said if it met the rules of canonicity. What are the if rules it was of con- canonicity? If it was consistent with the message of scripture. We're going to fight. If it was consistent with the message of scripture, if mm-hmm. it had apostolic authority, mm-hmm. those would be the two vague rules. What do you do with the self-authenticating nature of
1: scripture? Well, I believe scripture is self-authenticating. Well, you didn't say that a second but, ago.
0: But we're not ar- well, okay, but we're not well, ar- oh. no, okay. Okay. But we're arguing over the scope of the canon what's included.
1: What- it cannot be self-authenticating if the church has not had it for 2000 years. Jesus says, I'm sending you my spirit and I'm going to teach you and lead you into all truth. And that the Bible as we have as a closed canon will lead us into all life and godliness. And you just said that what we have is sufficient and necessary. And to add something to it would suggest that we actually do don't have something that we need for life and godliness, and you suggested that there are human canons that it meets in order for its inclusion into Scripture, not the self-authenticating nature that the Reformers and the entire church tradition has argued for. So you're saying, in other words, you're arguing for a Catholic position for including things in the biblical text, not a Reformed position.
0: Well, no, 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 and I, 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 and, no, and I, I understand <laughs> that that's exactly what I'm doing. Okay. But you're, you're telling me that— you're then, tell- why not include, well, then why not include the pseudepigrapha? I, I, I don't have,
2: know what that is, but that's a
0: fancy word. The Catholic books of the yeah. Bible. I, I wouldn't have a problem including those as an appendix. Wow. Kyle right, so just re-
1: lost his Reformed no, credentials. No, 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 for
0: real. You're telling me that First and Second Maccabees has not been widely influential in understanding the intertestamental period? Does it not, not as
1: an inspired biblical text.
0: Okay so then so so would you be would you have a compromised position in terms of saying I would include uh, this if we found the other letter to Corinth it would inform the historiography
1: I would be more than happy to include that the Was same way I'm happy to include Josephus
0: That's not the same thing
1: what I'm saying you learn from it sure. I'm not saying that we could say it's an inspired biblical text that is self authenticating as what... God testifying to himself as his own written I, word I, I Okay know.
2: Listen, I was going to bring a bell along for the Q and A so we could keep things moving. So the answer to question number two: How do we defend the closed nature of the canon? Is we're not good at it. Gonna, so
1: uh, uh, the, the Catholics or Kyle aren't good no, at it. The no. Reformed tradition has been thinking about this for a very long time, and they're very
0: good at it. Okay. and Kyle and I are going to yell about this as soon as we no, go. No, for sure. Okay. Like, like I'm, um, I'm as mad as I've ever been at you personally. <laughs> um,
2: I wish you could see the body language because it's so great. I
0: just okay. uh, like, like can, I get, can I have the last word on the topic?
2: Oh, uh, no, it depends on what it is. The, rang last,
0: the bell. The last word on the topic is that I think this, the is, fall this is a chink in the armor for Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a this is this is chink in the armor. There's no doubt that 1st and 2nd Maccabees, the pseudepigrapha are a great example of this, have so informed our understanding of the mission of Jesus. Like you can't make, like once you encounter that stuff, you realize you're reading the Gospels differently. So I understand that they're non-canonical and I'm okay with that. But I do think it's inconsistent for us to act as if they have not been deeply formative on how we think about the canon.
2: Okay, that was a really long last word. No, no, Dante. I don't need to no. have, a, I'm going to no. say,
1: I'm not going to have a last word. I need, all I need to say is, That was argument enough for me. Thank you, Kyle. I'm glad you can have the last word.
0: Question number three, one for the the ladies. What's the meaning of 1 Timothy 2.15, women are saved through childbirth?
2: Oh, so easy, guys. Um, Yeah, this isn't controversial one tiny bit. Um, so are you, you want, are you are want you me to start?
0: Or is it you true? want me to start on it? Yeah, please. Uh,
2: so some some people have said uh, taking this literally. I would say this is one of those classic examples of a literal reading versus a literate reading. So if you're familiar with people who believe that women should have as many babies, physical babies, as they can, um, in order to um, be saved, then that would fall under this category. Um, but I think that. My personal take on this, um, I have I have both a what I would call a literate take on this and then um, and then sort of a secondary application of it that I have found um, is one that was worth meditating on. So women are saved through childbearing, I would say, is a reference to um, what the what God says of, of Eve in the garden that the 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 seed will crush the head of the serpent that, mm. that she will give. And she's the, the mother of all living. Right. So I think we see its fulfillment um, through that. But then I think there is sort of a general beautiful idea here for women Um related to childbearing that we are we're we're biologically life givers and that there are spiritual applications for that whether you ever actually give birth to a physical child or not that we um we nurture life and, and that um whether it is your spiritual children or your literal children that there is a real pain associated with that that it's the pain of investing yourself in another person and not knowing whether the outcome will be a desired outcome or one that is heartbreak Um, but trusting in the Lord that he's working through that nurturing act.
0: Yeah, and the Adam and Eve jump is not a big jump. The verse right before sets up the context is
2: yes, Adam Yes, but people tend to not pay attention to that.
0: <laughs> so it's like,
2: <laughs> and, and that's not to
0: marginalize the question, whoever asked the question.
2: Well, there's actually another um, actually interesting idea here that that uh, we came across as we were doing our research, actually on the paper on complementarianism, and it's the, um, the cultural context for this um, comment that um, the... The cult of Artemis mm-hmm. was one in which Artemis was believed to preserve women through childbearing. And so people would pray to Artemis for safe delivery of their children. And so that it's possible that what Paul is saying here is also answering that false teaching with, no, no, no. It's the Lord who delivers in that situation. It's That's true. just another interesting one you can throw into the mix.
0: Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life study Bibles for women and the Courage for Life study Bibles for men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. On to the next one, doctrine of justification reform view versus NT Wright's position. So just a quick note here, uh, uh, and I think I understand the the nature of the question, but N.T. Wright's view would fall under a reformed view of justification. So not a narrowly reformed view in terms of like the view of the reformers on justification. He is making some modifications to that. But keep in mind, N.T. Wright, uh, he's an Anglican, so he's not, he's He's not. He's in protest. Right. Yeah. So he. uh, Against the Catholic Church. Again, this is another one of those places where the popular level discussion on this has made like tried to present a polarization that doesn't actually exist. Mm-hmm. Now, there are real differences between contemporary, kind of what you might call reformed theologians around what justification is, and right's a part of that conversation. That's right. So just to situate it. Mm-hmm. Is that helpful? You want to really kick good. us off?
1: Yeah, so um... And N.T. right is a part of a reform position that would understand itself as the new perspective on Paul in contrast with what they would call the old perspective or the reformer's view on Paul. Uh, But even within that camp, there is a ton of different positions on justification. So it's going to be really hard for us to probably do justice to this because I've probably listened to 100 hours of podcasts or slash books on this. And it's still kind of like, I think I understand what they're saying. Yep. So it's hard. Basically what N.T. Wright and others like him would say is that our understanding of works of the law, uh, that the reformers misread what the Bible was saying in Galatians about works of the law through their own contemporary lenses. In other words, you've got Martin Luther uh, spending time uh, watching uh, people sell indulgences uh, or, or in order to, uh, to, to gain justification with God. And Luther says, wait, no, we're not justified by indulgences or in keeping works of the law. We're justified by the righteousness of God alone. I think that's true. I think that's accurate. What N.T. Wright and others would say is that works of the law for Second Temple Judaism was not indulgences or uh, keeping uh, obedience to the law, but it was Jewish sign markers, yep. things like circumcision or Sabbath or food laws. And so one of the primary questions, and to your right, I would say of the New Testament is not, um, are you being a moral person? though that it is addressing that, but works of the law is asking the question, do you have to be Jewish in order to be Christian, right? And so you think about like Acts chapter 15, one of the primary questions is, Do we require these Gentile converts to be circumcised? Or you see the relationship between Paul and Peter that's going on in Galatians chapter 2 that Paul writes about, where where Peter is requiring that Gentile believers do Jewish things in order to be accepted into the church. And this new perspective on Paul is saying, you're justified not by being circumcised or works of the law. You're justified by the grace of God. And that this is going to be an overstatement. Uh, the older Reformed tradition, Calvin, Luther, is thinking about justification as primarily a vertical relationship, and that's definitely true. Some of the new this, and again, this is an oversimplification think about justification as a horizontal relationship. Yeah. That we're experiencing justification by God tearing down the wall of hostility that separates Jews and Gentiles, or male and female, or slaves and free.
0: Yeah. N.T. Wright has been really candid about this, and I appreciate it. Like, he's a guy, he's one of my favorite theologians because, uh, not because I just take everything says lock, stock, and smoke, and barrel, but he, he he takes the idea seriously. He doesn't really take himself seriously, right. which I love mm-hmm. that. Uh, it's re, It makes it really fun to listen and read and engage with him because there's really very little pretense to him, and that's an encouragement. Um, but he's been really candid about saying, I think one of the reasons why This view of justification, um, it seems unpalatable, is that it doesn't it's not as easy to preach. Mm-hmm. It's not as easy to teach. Mm-hmm. And and I think he's right in saying that because it is a lot easier. One of his pushbacks is that justification or the imputation of righteousness is often seen as a credit system where it's just like Jesus dies and he deposits like this whole bank of credit. And then when you receive Christ, you get access to this whole bank of credit that you can never outspend. Um, and uh, his push a little bit is that that, that might be uh, too transparent Transactional, too mm-hmm. forensic of a category. And he's trying to emphasize, and I think he's right in this, emphasizing both the cultural context around what the law was and our misunderstandings mm-hmm. of Jewish religious observance, which I think has important implications for how we think about obedience in the Christian life. And I think he's on the right track there. And he's trying to recover what I think is the relational context that justification has mm-hmm. existed. And, uh, and I've been, I think, in our episode of Union with Christ, I said this, but I really think a lot of the trouble here is that justification and sanctification are seen outside of the the relational context of, of Union with Christ and adoption. I think the moment that you put it back into that frame... I do think a lot of our concerns uh, they're not we can still disagree, but I do think a lot of our concerns over when and how and what are alleviated because they're, it's pulled back into this relational context. There's two resources here that I think are really helpful if you can find it. There is a conversation between Tom Schreiner mm-hmm. and NT Wright at ETS yep. Evangelical Theological Society. They have an annual meeting. It's the largest Evangelical Theological Society in the world. They have a journal that they publish, but they had a meeting, and I know it's out there. It's in the web, it's on the website. It is. You can find the MP3. But NT Wright and Tom Schreiner have a conversation, and there are multiple points of the conversation where they both are like, "Yeah, we pretty much agree." What you find in the in the course of that conversation, you can double down on this, JT, is that like there's a lot of agreement between. Oh my these goodness! Two.
1: Yeah, they try to make it sound like they're saying completely different things, right. but it's it, no, minor. Yeah,
0: and then the other book is Justification Reconsidered by Stephen Westerholm, which does a good, uh, I think, overview of these things. It's real short too. So great. Okay, moving forward, uh, what did Jesus do in the three days between his death and resurrection?
2: Mm, lightning round. <laughs> are you? Is that, spe- is that like a? Sub? Are you speaking that into me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, what do you think, Jen? Uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with God.
1: He went to the realm of the dead. He descended to Hades.
2: You That's don't it. think that? I absolutely think
1: that. You don't? The Apostles' Creed says it. Oh, okay.
2: I don't know. I don't think that. <laughs> I de- I definitely
1: think that <laughs> that he descended. Yeah, he had to. Holy do you Saturday. Think he, was he goes to the realm of the
2: dead. to uh, who... I don't
1: know that I would say that, but I do know that he takes upon death for us and then leads us out of the grave. He has to. Or else so what the gospel does he mean when, the,
0: the when he tells the thief today, "You'll be with me in paradise"?
1: Uh, there is truth to, well, I mean, this this is tough, right? Because you've got questions of time and eternality, which we probably don't have time to get into in a lightning round, Jen. Thank you. Um, but there is a sense in which spiritually it's possible that he is, is experiencing paradise with the Lord, but his body is in a tomb. It's in the grave. It is. Yeah. I'm not
2: disputing. Yeah. But I, you know, that whole, he, he descended into hell is often interpreted as he suffered to the uttermost.
0: Yeah. Right. Okay, I have a question. Do the two nature uh, so somebody might be listening to this and they've been like, "Hey, I've been following along. I'm trying to be a good Christological theologian." There's two natures, one person. Is it the divine? Like, is it the is it the spirit of the person who who is descending? Because it's not, if not Christ embodied, the body's in the tomb. The body's remained in the tomb.
1: Well, it depends on what you mean by descended.
0: Okay, so what descent into death is this? the well, – here's is what it we're the soul of the one person. I mean. Or it's because it, it, it can't. It's not the divine. This is not a uh, Eutychianism, or I'm sorry, a Docetism, yeah. right before the resurrection, is it? No, because okay, he's not divided against himself again. No. Okay,
1: but he does experience the same kind of separation in death that we will experience of a body going into the tomb and uh, our spirit or, or our uh, souls being with the Lord. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. We have to say. He went to the place of the dead for us.
2: Yeah, but that's different than saying that he went into hell. Why? Because that's not the same thing.
0: Well, I, don't really, I don't even know if at the time hell properly understood was right. a place, right. right? Is it a place? Yeah. This no, I'm This, saying, it is. this is, it is the it is. worst
2: <laughs> lightning round <laughs> anyone has ever done.
0: Okay, the short answer to this question is that uh, we, we... We're not really sure. We're not really sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think he went to the place of the dead.
1: JT sure
2: I would, I would, go with that. But you said it more provocatively than that at
1: the beginning. <laughs> of because course, you that's
2: that. what you do.
1: Oh, I'm the provocative uh, one. Yeah, uh-huh. for sure.
0: <laughs> um, why do women no longer cover? No, their... no,
2: no, no, no. Do the one before that. No, um,
0: I'm sorry, I missed that one. Wait, there's uh, two. No, you can
2: do that one. It's fine.
0: Okay, why do women no longer cover their hair in worship? First Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 11, two through sixteen, talk about women head covering. JT? Why, why do I'd they love they to hear what you have to say, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to throw
1: me under the bus. <laughs>
2: <laughs> because hairstyles have improved dramatically <laughs> since the first century. Okay. Speak for uh, yourself. So I know all the issues. I know all the problems around this, mm-hmm. this passage and the question of whether it's culturally bound or not culturally bound. And if you say that this is not culturally bound, or if you say it is culturally bound, then there are other things that would be associated with that. So... JT, you wrote this part of the paper. Why don't you talk about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, we'd be foolish to say that this isn't a kind of a thorny, complex topic where there's lots of positions. What we'll say now is where we landed, and we're happy to— You can read it. You want to read it, Kyle? No, no, no. I'm just saying that they can if they want to read it. I thought you might Mm -hmm. read the the long
2: In the long version.
1: Yeah, we think that this is a culturally bound— Kind of theological conversation that's happening here, something that's specific to the context of Corinth, in which they're talking about male-female relations and how they represent and uh, mm-hmm. uh, image God, and that this is a uh, an opportunity for Paul to say, "Here is a, a a way that you represent what it means to be male and female
0: in your context." Okay, mm-hmm. that's good. That's how I would answer the question: Does prayer change God's mind?
2: Mm. Can I answer this one? Sure. <laughs> so the way that I often hear this described, so it's a yes and a no. So just to let the cat out of the bag, I'm, I'm going to play it both ways. Um, it, well, but but we first have to address the question of why does someone change their mind? And if you think to your own personal experience, why do you change your mind on something? It is either because someone convinces you by giving you an argument or information that you hadn't considered or it is because someone coerces you because they have power over you to make you do what they want. So, um, and I'm ripping this off from R.C. Sproul, by the way. Okay. So, so basically, if I say to Kyle, give me your wallet, he might say no, but then if I pull a gun on Kyle, then Kyle might change his mind and say, oh, you know what, you can actually have my wallet. Mm-hmm. Um, or <clears throat> if I say, give me your wallet, and he says no, and I say, but I really need $10, or I'm not gonna be able to get home because I don't have any gas. And left my wallet at home, then he might give me his wallet. So, in both cases, he was get either given information that he did not have that changed his mind, or he was coerced because I had a power over him. And um, neither of those situations can be said to be true of God at any time. Yeah. And no one can give him information that he didn't have, give him a convincing argument he was not aware of because he holds all knowledge, and no one can overpower him because he holds all power. So, do we change his mind in the sense that we understand it in he human terms? No. But does prayer impact what God does? Well, yes, because God has determined that that is how he will operate through the prayers of his people.
0: Yeah. And that the how and the why of that is in yeah. the counsel of God.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: I mean, anything to add to that? No, that's, that's great. Yeah. That's a great answer. Um, thanks RC. Thank you, RC. Mm-hmm. Um, how you define what is theological essential, theologically essential? How do you define? I my definition of what is theologically essential is what is contained in the three ecumenical creeds, so, or the apostles Nicene see in Chalcedon. That's how I would define what's theologically essential. Now, what is confessionally helpful, that would be different. Mm-hmm. So I, I would distinguish between what the church has required as the bare minimum of Christian belief um, and what is confessionally helpful are different things. So I would say the creeds You would only say the first three. Yeah, I would say that the three creeds represent what is theologically essential. They hit the. They hit. So original sin isn't essential. No. Okay. Yeah, I would say. Do I think it's confessionally helpful? Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Is it the position I hold? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: But you would not say to deny original sin is heresy. No. I would so say Pelagius is not a heretic. I would say that it's unhelpful. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I would say it a bit differently. Okay. I would say the first seven ecumenical councils are essential, and that includes. Uh, the debate between Augustine and Pelagius but we're saying the same thing we're saying it's creeds Yep, it's what the it's creed. church everywhere at all times and all places has believed that's good yeah I, you anything to add to that? yeah and then we would That's say right. things like confessions.
2: Well, Conf- I mean, I think this is yeah, this is an important um, just a, uh, a learning point for the the listener who is wondering about some of the current cultural hot button issues. Is like, how do I know that these voices that are now telling me something is different than the way I've always understood it? How can I? Tr- how do I know which voices to trust? And um, there's there. It's always wise to start with well, what has been commonly held belief for two thousand years. Yeah.
1: And again, that's that's not just like pragmatic, that's that's holding to a deep view of God's providence yeah. and His work of the Spirit over centuries. It's not like yeah. the Spirit showed up in 2019 in Flowermont, Texas, and finally mm-hmm. gave us some insight. Mm-hmm. The Spirit has been working to lead His church into truth for mm-hmm. last two thousand years. And we, as we rely on church history, we're able to say we're relying on the work of the Spirit mm-hmm. for two thousand years.
2: And to understand that if you deviate from that, the burden of proof rests with you, and it is a huge burden of proof. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yep. Um, uh, per our episode on kid theologians, is it dangerous to say things like "Jesus loves you" to potentially unsaved kiddos? You
2: guys have kids too. Don't look at me. <laughs> I,
0: I don't think. I don't think it's dangerous at all. I tell my daughter Jesus loves her all the time, every single day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I want there to. I don't want there to ever be a time where she did not think and believe that God loves her. I have no reason. I have no reason to think that God doesn't love my daughter. Mm-hmm. Not, like not a single one. Yep. I agree.
2: So, is there no danger to saying
0: that? I don't know if there's no like to say no danger seems to be like I, like I like I could conceive of there being no mm-hmm. possible danger to mm-hmm. so the brokenness of her heart or the brokenness mm-hmm. of my heart using that in an unhelpful mm-hmm. way. So, I wouldn't. I'm not going to say that there's no danger because mm-hmm. uh, I don't know all of the possibilities that exist, yeah. and I don't know how she's going to hear all of that. But I, I'm going to say. I do not think that there is sufficient enough warrant for danger yeah. for me to avoid saying what I believe to be true.
2: So now I want to address what is the underlying parenting um, heartburn around this. And um, we we tend to think of par- words spoken as parents in isolation from relationship as parent. And that's, that's the bigger problem. Um, fear here is that um, I could say something that would keep my child out of the kingdom of heaven. Mm. And um, your words don't exist in isolation. The words of Scripture don't exist in isolation. They exist within the context of relationship with the one who spoke them. And so the reason that Kyle Worley saying Jesus loves you to his daughter is probably not a risky thing to say is because his daughter knows him and has deep relationship with him. Mm, And um, not only that, but um, more than the words that he tells her about Jesus will be the way that he models that love for her. And so just to parents out there who are afraid that they might utter a phrase that will result in their child not coming to faith, just understand that what you say is the smaller part of what you're communicating to your children. It's how you are expressing these things in, in day in and day out in your relationship.
0: That's good. Anything to add to that duty? That's good. If you're a layperson thinking about formal theological training to help you lead as a layperson, how do you approach choosing a degree? Master of Arts, Theology, MDiv, Focus on Apologetics, Theology, Biblical Studies. There's so many options, it's hard to know where to start. I have like thoughts on this. Great. <laughs> um, because I had this question all – I still get this question a lot. I have this question all the time. And I've got to say I feel like this is an area where our seminary systems have done an injustice to our people. <laughs> So I just feel super strongly about that. They've created this palette of options. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, and honestly, it's a paralysis by, by like options. And um, I, I really think if somebody asks me, hey, what's a good degree to do? Uh, what, what's a good route to take? First, I would say, have you exhausted all opportunities to pursue theological training and equipping within your church? If you have, and sadly for a lot. I was going
2: to say for many people, sadly, sadly the answer will be yes. The answer will
0: will be yes. And so as you consider other options that might be available to you, um, and you might be looking at it and you probably, maybe you don't live in an area where there's easy access to theological engagement. um, I would say the best thing that you can do is find a broad Bible degree, like a broad degree, not a specialist thing, like get a focus or like you might serve with the youth that you're church and that's great i would not encourage you to go do a youth ministry degree somewhere i would get the broadest possible base a generalist approach to this and i would find what the next step is don't feel like you have to get sold on like what the they will often tell you because they want you to be there they're often going to tell you a degree that i think is too bloated most of the time and it's going to have a lot of stuff in it you would learn better in your church Mm-hmm. than at that school I would get a broad degree that's uh, an MA a shorter degree smaller degree and I would keep it broad theological studies biblical studies something like that yep. that's my opinion
1: I'd, I'd say most of that. I'd, I'd probably say a little bit differently. I agree with, find as much as you can in the context of your local church, if that's possible. I would say do not uh, specialize on what you think your vocation might be, which we're in agreement with. If yeah. you think you're going to do youth ministry, don't do a degree in youth mm-hmm. ministry. Mm-hmm. If you think you're going to do family ministry, don't do a degree in family ministry. Get as broad, when you say broad, you mean uh, scope broad yeah. as you can.
2: Yeah. Well, I just want to drop in there, if you think you want to do women's ministry, Think hard before you get a women's ministry degree. Yeah,
1: don't get a women's ministry degree. Get as much Bible, get as much theology, and get as much church history as you can because yeah. that's going to serve you across the spectrum. Yeah. Um, I would also say when you when you're thinking, and this might be hard for the depending on where you are in the process, it's actually more important than the degree. It's where you study and who you study with. Yeah. like it doesn't matter if you got an MA or a ThM if you got it from a school that <laughs> wasn't teaching helpful doctrine or from faculty that weren't necessarily helpful. So ask around from fac- from other, maybe your pastor or people that you know, who've gone to school, we'd be happy to help answer this yeah. question of like, who like I, I got a THM at Dallas Seminary and I'm so grateful for it. But ultimately I feel like I got a THM with Jeff Bingham, like he's right. now at Southwestern Seminary and he just guided me through my process. I did my other degree at, at Southern Seminary, which is a phenomenal school. But ultimately, I spent most of my time with a specific person, Greg Allison. So don't just think about like big, big, big degree plan. Think about who do I want to be like? What kind of person do I want to be on the back end?
0: That's good. Anything to add there, Jen?
2: Nope. Oh, I do just want to circle back and just say, I'm not saying that there's not value with the women's ministry question. There's value in in thinking about women's ministry. But I just think, you know, you're going to be, you you can potentially limit yourself if that's your degree. Mm -hmm. Do something more broad. Good.
0: Well, we've got to bring this to a close, and uh, we're grateful for all the questions you submitted. Again, we, we are not able to get to all the questions, but we are really grateful that you're listening and that you're engaging with the content and that you trust us with your questions. Thank you so much for that. We do count it an honor and a responsibility to steward that faithfully. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. We're taking July and August off. Mm, it's a bummer. Um, but uh, we will be back in September, and we'll be walking through the book of Acts, um, the first half of the book of Acts, and then we'll jump into the second half in the spring. And we will also be working through the creeds. We decided on that, right? I'm all in. Let's Great. do it. We're going we're gonna to start with the Apostles' the first Creed. three or seven. Oh, gosh. Here we go. Full circle. Um, but we, <laughs> uh, we'll we we'll be into the, uh, in Acts and into the creeds, and we're so grateful for your listening, and uh, see you next time. Grace and peace.